Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the Forensic Psychology and True Crime Podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage case of the LA Times bombing. Welcome back, everybody. Great vintage episode this week that is very much a big piece of history for Los Angeles and yes. strangely, like almost immediately adjacent to where you and I work. I know. Right? I know. Historically, yeah. that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I'm glad we're getting um, around to it. Yeah. So we've got our Patreon holiday party coming up. So if you're one of the Patreon members, please look at the social media, meet us on Discord. You'll get more details about what's going to happen. We're closing in very quickly on the end of 2023. Who knew that would happen? I'm going to have to start. Yes, I'm one of those people that still writes checks. So I'm going to have to like, <laughs> oh no, 2024, 2024. I'm like, ready get for myself it. ready for it. I am ready for it. Yeah, we have next week, we will do kind of a little departure. We want to cover more of a story than a concept. And we're picking something that sort of coincides with Christmas. And then we'll have your documentary and that will round us out for 2023. Yeah. So on that note, our last episode was episode 166. And we covered two similar but distinct personality disorders, schizoid and schizotypal which greatly impact the individual's interpersonal interactions, their desire for closeness to others and thought patterns and just how they kind of go about thinking about the world around them. Although there's no causal link to violence supported in the research, we highlight two pretty high profile cases in which the perpetrator received somewhat of a diagnosis of schizoid personality disorder, even if it was just traits and mentions in the actual forensic reports. So that was super interesting. And again, like something that came to us from an idea that was a spinoff of one of our live streams. So yeah. please go back and listen to that. So today we're going to be covering an act of terrorism that occurred earlier than all of our other vintage cases so far. And it's the bombing of the LA Times building. At 1.07 a.m. October 1st, 1910, a bomb ripped through the classic three-story brick building at the northwest corner of First and Broadway. The blast destroyed the distinctive features of a dome rising above crenellations and the facade, beautiful classic architecture for the time in Los Angeles. And what was left was broken and crumpled carnage on the street, along with the remnants of a bronze eagle that had soared between the two columns of the building over a motto that said, stand fast, stand firm, stand sure, stand true. So the perpetrators were union supporters or what were at the time called unionists. Uh, and they were seeking retribution for the newspaper's anti-labor stance. They had strategically planted dynamite in the building's basement. And the explosion was nothing short of catastrophic because even though it was at one in the morning, newspapers at the time ran 24 hours a day in order to have the editions ready for the next morning. And this bomb explosion resulted in the death of 21 employees and caused extensive damage to the entire building, the production, and most of the block, actually. The investigation's aftermath revealed a plot to silence the paper's critical voice against organized labor, leaving the city in shock and totally reshaping the dynamics of the labor movement. So today we're gonna to discuss some of the important historical factors that contributed to this event, as well as explore the tipping point of protest into radicalization and terrorism. So trigger warnings, we're gonna be talking about terrorism, radicalization, 
death by bomb attacks and suicide. Yes. So the history of the major newspapers in Los Angeles traces back to the mid-19th century when the city was in its infancy. In 1851, the first newspaper, the Los Angeles Star, was established by Edward and John Neighbors, and the paper played a crucial role in chronicling the development of the city during its very early years and reported on issues ranging from local politics to the booming real estate market of Los Angeles. Over the following decades, Los Angeles Times emerged as a dominant force in the city's media landscape. Founded in 1881, the LA Times quickly grew in influence and circulation, becoming a powerful voice in Southern California. So we're going to give you some names here, and a lot of them are similar, so bear with us. (laughs) We're going through a whole basically family dynasty. Yes, we are. So Harrison Gray Otis became a partial owner of the Times just a year after its establishment. And in 1884, he incorporated it within a public corporation called the Times Mirror Company. The paper showed exponential success and became a political powerhouse in California, as well as a well-respected publication in the Southland. And in the early days, the paper certainly had a notable political bias. However, its contributions to the development of the greater Los Angeles area and its progressive push for technology added to the good name of the times. Some of those innovations included the launch of the United States' first newspaper-owned radio station in 1922. And then in 1928, it began to utilize airplanes to deliver newspapers to other cities. Now, if you're an L.A. history buff, you'll know that it's important to mention the Chandler family when covering the history of the L.A. Times. And in 1917, Harry Chandler took over as publisher, succeeding his father-in-law, Harrison Otis. And then in 1944, Norman Chandler took over for his father, going on to introduce the afternoon tabloid, the Los Angeles Mirror, which ran until 1962. Clearly not one to innovate when naming their children, Norman's son was named Otis Chandler, and he took over as publisher in the 1960s, solidifying the impact of really a family dynasty, cornering the market on news for years. Now, there were plenty of other smaller newspapers, but the LA Times and the Los Angeles Mirror really cornered the market. And it was at this time, under the influence of Otis, that the Times underwent its most major evolution, moving from conservative posturing to a much more balanced and thorough approach to real journalism. And then the wife of Norman Chandler was Dorothy Chandler, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Pavilion, yeah. Yeah, at the music center. Big philanthropist. Gave a lot of money to arts in the LA area. Yes. So just a little bit of this history of the LA Times before we get into our crime. Otis Chandler went on to face more controversy in the 1960s surrounding allegations of impropriety and financial misconduct. This scandal raised questions about the newspaper's management altogether. However, in 1964, the Times Mirror Company achieved a historic milestone by becoming the first general interest newspaper corporation to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. The company, under the ownership of the influential Chandler family, expanded its portfolio to include various newspapers, magazines, book publishers, and broadcast and multimedia outlets. Following Otis Chandler's departure as board chairman in 1991, the Los Angeles Times underwent significant transformations, sparking criticism for perceived compromises between the editorial and advertising departments. 
So jumping forward in its history, the landscape of the Los Angeles Times took a turn in June 2000 when the Tribune Company of Chicago acquired the Times Mirror Company. And this acquisition granted the Chandler family, who held the majority of the Times Mirror stock, a significant ownership stake in the Tribune Company. The newspaper garnered recognition in 2004 by securing five Pulitzer Prizes in a single year, which is a record achievement that underscored its commitment to journalistic excellence. However, the early 21st century saw the Times navigating some real financial challenges, leading to a period of substantial restructuring marked by employee buyouts and job cuts. And in 2014, the Tribune Company spun off its own publishing division, making the Times a subsidiary of the newly formed entity later named Trunk, T-R-O-N-C. Very strange name. Yes, feels very futuristic. (laughs) So the year 2017 ushered in a tumultuous period for the Times, characterized by escalating tensions between journalists and management, along with a series of changes in the position of editors-in-chief. Responding to these challenges, the paper staff voted to unionize in January of 2018, and the following month, Trunk announced the sale of the LA Times to local biotech billionaire Patrick Soon Xiong for $500 million. That's actually less than the Dodgers just acquired pitcher Otani from the Angels this week. (laughs) It's all relative, right? It seems like a lot, but for something that's this big of a journalistic entity, that doesn't seem like much. True. This deal, finalized in 2018, also included Soon Xiong's acquisition of the San Diego Union Tribune. And in the aftermath of the acquisition, Soon Xiong relocated the headquarters of the LA Times to El Segundo, marking a new chapter in the newspaper's long and eventful history and leaving downtown Los Angeles behind. Which was a huge deal. Because the LA Times building, the newer one, which has a very beautiful art deco facade. I mean, it's an enormous building and it caused a lot of controversy. Like, why would we go to El Segundo? We're the LA Times. And a lot of people, it caused a big shakeup in staff. But today, the Los Angeles Times continues to be a prominent source of news and information in Southern California. And so far, it has weathered the storms of rapidly changing media landscapes, adapting to the digital age in really creative and novel ways while maintaining a commitment to journalistic integrity and providing coverage of local and global events. A great example that intersects with the true crime community was the podcast and accompanying LA Times web-based presentation presentation of the story of Dirty John. Very, very interesting integration of yeah. a web-based newspaper with animation and, media, and yeah, listening to the podcast. Media. Really well done. But let's, now that we've given you the history of the LA Times, its ups and its downs, let's go back to really this precipitating event that changed the course of the labor union movement in Southern California. We're going to go back to the 1910 incident, and there was a labor strike that erupted at the LA Times, and it became known as one of the most significant industrial conflicts in the city's history. It was primarily fueled by longstanding tensions between the newspaper's management and its workforce. Workers at the Los Angeles Times, led by the International Typographical Union, the ITU, were very dissatisfied with their working conditions, including hours and building safety, as well as low wages and the anti-union stance of the newspaper's owner and publisher, Harris Gray Otis. So the strike escalated after Otis refused to meet the demands of the printer's union for increased wages and improved working conditions. 
As negotiations broke down, the dispute continued to intensify, leading to a protracted and a violent conflict. The culmination of all these grievances and the subsequent events marked a pivotal moment in the history of labor relations in the L.A. area, and it highlighted the struggles of workers facing powerful anti-union employers. When it turned violent, it led to the destructions of the time building and resulted in multiple casualties. You know, this is kind of weird to talk about right now, actually, because one, like we said, you literally work across the street from where right. this block um, of buildings were and on one of those corners where the original building stood. But also my union is just starting negotiations. I have to go in this week on a day off, actually, and sit at the table to do negotiating for a new contract. And it's interesting. We just voted as a union on whether or not we would strike if need be, which is interesting because like as psychologists clinical psychologists, we really can't because we can't abandon our patients, but we can still vote on whether or not some of the other members of our union can strike. So like, this is all <laughs> very serendipitous that we picked this. And now I'm in the middle of that, but you've worked on union negotiations before too. Brutal. Yeah. It's a brutal process and took years off my life. And, you know, I, I worked with some really amazing union negotiators that they're they're physiologically wired for that type of thing yeah. and you know they're not conflict avoidant and they're savvy and they have strengths that i really don't think that i have i mean maybe mm. i developed some i certainly developed a lot of patience a lot of patience <laughs> yeah you know you have to push back against the creep because yeah. As we live in this, you know, financial environment that constantly wants to squeeze every last bit of money out of workers, you have to, people have to stand up and fight. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know how much there is to lose. I mean, I yeah. get it. We'll probably have listeners in other states that are right to work states that don't have unions at all. And yeah. Um, well, I think as, you know, as much of, you know, coming up for me, I realize what a pain in the ass it's going to be. This story really kind of grounded me <laughs> to realize we have a much more civilized way of dealing with things these days because of moments in history like our story today. Well, and as I put a note here to say, if anyone is interested in a fictionalized but actually very accurate history version of anti-union sentiment, there's a show on Max right now called The Gilded Age. Mm. And it talks about at the turn of the 20th century, the robber barons with the railroads and how they just had power over everything. And there was just, they didn't care that there were families living in one bedroom ramshackle houses. They right. did not give a shit at all. It's like, no, you're going to work 12, 14, 20 hour shifts and then you're going to come back. And it's interesting that we just take it for granted that the reason we have a five day work week yeah. It's because of unions. Yeah. So fascinating stuff. So back to Harrison Gray Otis, who was the owner of the LA Times from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. We're talking the, the OG Otis is who we're talking yes. about. He made it really clear to his staff and the public that he was absolutely against any sort of labor unions. And he was noted to be part of a strident local anti-union organization called the Merchants and Manufacturers Association. So given the promotion of America as the land of possibilities for the last hundred years, it is easy to forget, especially for our younger generations, to have any idea of the previous structures of inequality that existed parallel to racial siloing and injustices in practically all industries. In the early 20th century, the United States was characterized by a rigid social structure that reflected deeply entrenched economic disparities 
with much of the ideologies being Americanized versions of what had long existed in the United Kingdom. The nation was experiencing the transformative impacts of industrialization and urbanization, leading to the emergence of distinct social and economic castes. At the top of the hierarchy were the industrial magnates and financiers, commonly referred to as the robber barons, who amassed immense wealth through rapid expansion of industries like steel, oil, and railroads. Figures like Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller became synonymous with this elite class, wielding unprecedented economic influence and often reshaping national policy to favor their interests. This economic aristocracy established a clear demarcation between the wealthy elite and the rest of society. Which is so interesting because it's kind of what's happening now. You know, we have Bezos, you know, we, on one hand, Bezos is like trying in some ways to make healthcare affordable for his workers, but that's kind of scary because that's what the robber barons did is they made everything in-house. So Mm. you get paid in company chits and you use those chits to go to the company store. You trade for things that have been marked up in value so that you're always caught in this survival mode. Like the prison commissary. Absolutely. God. And look, beneath these industrial tycoons and people listening, you need to understand these people were the Bezos of their time. They were unbelievably, unbelievably wealthy. Think the Gilded Age, think Downton Abbey. It was Mm. that level of money and just luxury that they lived in. But there was at the time in America when this was happening, an expanding middle class. And that was a result of and because of the economic boom. So it was made up of all sorts of professionals, managers, small business owners. And then this middle class experienced this large degree of economic stability. And with stability, there was now the possibility for social mobility. So this particular strata of society suddenly had the possibility sort of overlapped with American ingenuity and American mobility and the idea of you can be anything, you can do anything in America. They're starting to wear away at that caste system and realize like, wait, we can move up. We can improve our social standing. I can have a better quality of life for my family. My children don't have to be stuck in the same thing that the last three generations of my family have been stuck in. But even within this middle-class distinction, continue to exist. And there was the emergence of what was called white collar professionals, we use this term today, that enjoyed greater social prestige than those engaged in smaller scale businesses and pursuits. And of course, at the bottom of the social and economic hierarchy were the working class and immigrant populations. And industrial workers toiled in factories under really harsh conditions, facing long hours, low wages, and minimal job security. The influx of immigrants, particularly from Southern and Eastern Europe, fueled the growth of a diverse working class, often subjected to discrimination and exploitation, as well as being pitted against each other as new waves came from the different areas of Europe, with each particular ethnic or cultural group becoming more solidified, then vilifying the next group of immigrants, and the robber barons profited greatly from just fanning these flames of tensions that were building up within groups and between groups. The economic divide was further aggravated by racial segregation and discrimination against African-Americans, particularly in the Southern states. This stark stratification of society with distinct economic and social castes set the stage for social tensions, labor movements, and calls for reform that would come to define the early 20th century 
in the U.S. So the Los Angeles iron worker strike began in June 1910. California labor activists felt that this was needed as the quote unquote open shop and policies of many L.A. industries were threatening the high wages and working conditions in the heavily unionized San Francisco area. The strike resulted in an anti-picketing ordinance, not cool, and Otis used both the Merchants and Manufacturers Association and the LA Times to grandstand all of his anti-union views. And the open shop term I referred to earlier was a place of work that didn't require union membership. So basically it was, they had a set group of scabs that they could always call on for Mm -hmm. any type of work if their regular employees started complaining. Right. So in the dusk of September 30th, 1910, a man hurriedly left the downtown Los Angeles Baltimore Hotel, still standing, drive by it all the time, and he plunged into the heart of the city on what for him was just another perilous bombing mission. A seasoned veteran haunted by memories of countless other bombings, he meticulously selected targets, assembled dynamite time bombs, and crafted alibis with chilling efficiency. To him... This was just another routine in a series of bombings, but little did he know that it would escalate into something far more sinister. Clutching a suitcase harboring three time bombs or infernal devices, as they were ominously known at the time, the man traveled the city's streets, leaving these deadly packages at strategic locations. In a dark alley inside the Los Angeles Times building known as Ink Alley, he concealed one of these timed dynamite bombs. Within a hair's breadth of disaster, he planted identical time bombs outside the homes of Los Angeles Times publisher Harrison Gray Otis and his close ally, Felix Zehandler. Fate intervened as their mechanisms jammed at their homes. Now, Ink Alley isn't like just an alley behind the building. This was a part of the LA Times building. Think of in the middle of a city block size building. It was an archway where basically you would go in and where deliveries would be made, but they also stored barrels of ink for the newspapers there. So that's where this bomb was planted, which you can imagine it was basically in the belly of this building. So it's going to do a lot of damage. Right. It's actually kind of genius planning because it would have created an even larger explosion because it was in this open area between the two buildings, kind of like very, very frightening. And of course, the intention of the violent plan was to bring union resistant Los Angeles to its knees, regardless of the cost in life and and business. Confident that his three bombs would unleash havoc long after his escape, he nonchalantly retraced his steps back to the Los Angeles Santa Fe station, which was at 2nd and Alameda at the time. He boarded an evening train to San Francisco, and the bombs were set to go off seven hours after he placed them. Again, like you were saying earlier, he was crafting perfect alibis for himself. The culmination came shortly after 1 a.m. on October 1st, 1910, and as his train was hurtling north through the night, a huge explosion obliterated the LA Times building, leaving 21 dead and many more injured in the inferno of the blast. The calamity did not deter October 1st, 1910 issue of the Times. The urgent aftermath saw the newspaper's relocation to 531 South Spring Street, the home of a rival paper, the LA Herald, who then offered its presses for the Times to be printed. Amid the chaos, Harry Andrews, the then managing editor of the Times, defiantly declared, they can kill our men and they can wreck our building, but by God above, they cannot kill the Times. 
Hmm. Interesting way to phrase that, Harry. Panic continued to grip the city with people fleeing into the streets, convinced that an earthquake had struck. Mm. Yeah, some of the people who died didn't necessarily die as a result of the blast or the fire itself, but they actually jumped to their death because they were trapped at the top of the building. Mm. Hence, you know, our trigger warning about suicide. Unfortunately, they were faced with that really awful decision of what to do. But yeah, that is an interesting quote because, you know, so far we're sort of vilifying the LA Times for being anti-union, but there's something sort of, you know, then you step over on the free speech side of things and you go, God, this act of terrorism, they weren't going to let it keep them from running the news that day. And even the LA Herald opened their building up to them. So interesting. I mean, I think that's just kind of getting into the dynamics of what was going on at the time. And all yeah, of not certainly issues. don't in, please any listeners don't interpret that we're supporting violence in any way. That's that's not the the tone of what we're being what is being discussed. But it is very interesting from a psychological standpoint to see how behavioral and perceptual drift can happen. Yeah. You know, this is this is how terrorism occurs is when you mm-hmm. get the message that no one is listening. Our people are suffering. How do I take care of my family? And when those messages, whether they're accurate or not, and in this case, some of it was very accurate, it pushes the people to desperation to think, well, this is what it's going to take to make my point. Right. So the photographs that the LA Times has of the inferno raging out of the building and the windows and the devastation afterwards are really some of the most like haunted and clear photographs that I've really seen from that era. So I'm I'm going to put a link to this LA Times website that has a lot of these on there. I'll put them in the show notes. I'll put it on social media. But they is, catch- there any, is there any indication that they, they what do you call it, like altered the photographs them. or restored them? That's it, not altered so much as cleared them up. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But they really like capture the faces of the people on the street afterwards, you know, with the destruction behind them. And there's just the old timey police officers and the the people on the street coming to look and you just really see how it comes to life for the city and the aftermath. Just really, really cool pictures. So suspicion immediately fell on labor activists and anarchists with Otis pointing fingers while the American Federation of Labor denied their involvement. And the McNamara brothers, James Barnabas and John Joseph, were quickly suspected. Shockingly, the McNamara brothers received widespread support with the labor community rallying behind them, believing the brothers had been framed. So this investigation actually fell into the hands of a detective named William Burns, and he put the brothers under surveillance for about a month because they were so... It, it wasn't any secret that they were part of these movements across the country. So he puts them under surveillance and James Barnabas or JB, he's the one that actually planted the bomb. So he goes up north, kind of knows he's under surveillance, goes up north on these trips. And then what the other unionists or activists do is they decide, well, let's plant more bombs in the LA area to kind of throw them off JB scent. And Ordy McMangle is also a character in this story that helped to select targets and would carry bombs around. 
And he comes to the Los Angeles area and they had actually targeted the Alexandria Hotel. The Hall of Justice, I believe, was starting to be constructed at that time. It was well under construction. They also targeted that location. And he kind of flubs the whole situation. He gets kind of scared and there were some eyes on him as well. So he gets picked up by the detectives and brought in. So there's this urgency of the situation heightening. They pick up Ordy. They extract a confession from him. So he implicates the McNamara brothers in the LA Times bombing. And this sets the stage for a tumultuous legal battle. So Ordy was part of a group of men known as the Wrecking Crew, along with the McNamara brothers, who essentially carried out the handling of the physical bombs in these bombings that they did across the country. A lot of this information that we got today, I want to just do a shout out to esoteric website and tour company here in Los Angeles. They are historians and preservationists. And during COVID, they took some of their tours online and did webinars. And there's a fantastic webinar that they do on the LA Times bombing. And they have Detective Mike Digby of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, who is a bomb expert. And he's just kind of a nerd for all of this stuff and historian himself. So he goes through this and does a wonderful presentation. But in his research, he said that John McNamara's involvement probably spans over 100 bombings throughout the country. He was a key player in what Detective Digby says, a nationwide campaign of terror and sabotage orchestrated by hardcore elements within the National Labor movement. So, I mean, he's just like, these guys were no joke. You, you did not want to cross them. You did not want them to target you. And their relentless bombing spree was driven by extreme union ideologies reverberated across the entire United States. So, you know, again, no wonder the McNamara brothers were suspected right away. So James or JB was more of like a rough and tumble kind of streetwise drinker womanizer while his brother, John was actually the secretary treasurer of the Iron Workers Union. And John's role in that would mean that he was essentially responsible for managing the slush funds that funded the bombers all over the country for these acts of terrorism, as well as he was kind of part of the group that decided which buildings were going to get bombed and scouted out the best part. So JJ, James John, was more of the... How can we target to have the most quote unquote impact while JB was the guy that kind of handled the bombs and followed it through? Yeah. So again, what we're talking about again, please <laughs> <at least> say <laughs> Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh are pro-union and pro-appropriate protest, but decidedly and firmly anti-terrorism. Just want to be clear about <laughs> that. And also, I think digging deeper down into that, there is a type of personality not necessarily that we can certainly diagnose either of these two brothers, but they do have an ideology that they yes. have now ascribed to. This is not just about them getting paid. They have a belief that has been inculcated into their system. They are now doggedly and decidedly going to make it happen to the point where it's not going to make sense anymore. Yeah. Because when you are this prolific of a criminal or a terrorist in this way, it is very easy for sentiment to turn against you. So most people would think if we're trying to solidify and expand on the middle class and provide better quality of lives for our peers, we want everybody on our side. But if everybody's walking around in terror, you're going to lose support yes. very quickly. So amid all of this chaos, the urgency 
heightened as attorney Clarence Darrow, yes, the Clarence Darrow, was enlisted by Samuel Gompers, who was the head of the American Federation of Labor. And Darrow took charge of the McNamara's brother's defense. So the trial that commenced on October 11th, 1911, unfolded as a battleground where the labor community grappling with suspicions of framing were confronting mounting evidence against the brothers. So the urgency of all this just shot up immediately as Darrow, quite aware of their guilt, <laughs> strategically positioned himself to spare the brothers from the impending death sentence. The trial unfolded in a climate of intimidation with both the defense and the prosecution allegedly threatening witnesses and tampering with evidence, which just cast a dark shadow over the entire justice process. So into this storm stepped an individual named Lincoln Steffens, a journalist with a somewhat iffy background as a muckraker, and he injected even more urgency into the narrative as he sought to test the ideas about Christianity and foster improved labor relations. So his intervention hinged on the notion that if the prosecution and the judge showed mercy by letting the McNamara's go free, it could be a symbol of Christian forgiveness, fostering a favorable environment for reconciliation between labor and business. So I couldn't help in reading this after I was able to pick my jaw off the floor <laughs> is a really really well-known Albert Brooks movie from 1985 called Lost in America, mm. where a couple, for this whole story in LA, a guy doesn't get a promotion. He has a freak out at a job and just decides, well, fuck everybody. We're just going to, we're going to drop out of society. So they liquefy everything, buy an RV and decide that they're just going to travel for the rest of their lives or maybe settle down later, but they're going to take the next decade and just do what they want. And it all goes completely south because his wife, unbeknownst to either of them, it has a gambling addiction. So oh they stop in Vegas. She loses all of their money in, at the roulette table. And Albert Brooks, who's a salesman, is trying to sell the casino worker on, okay, this could look really good for the casino. If you just promote to people that, hey, we're going to let them, they didn't mean to lose $500,000. We're going to forgive them. Oh my so, God. Yeah. It's a fascinating movie. Really funny if you ever get a chance to see it, but this is a really interesting defense. And to me, it really does just to use even some more Judeo-Christian language. It, it's like a Hail Mary, really, just to see- yeah okay, these guys are going down. There's no way to deny it. Let me just throw some spaghetti against a wall and see if anything sticks. So I think this is just such a weird little but accurate time capsule of Los Angeles because you have this huge act of terrorism that's going to trial a year later. But then you have this journalist, like who is he to put his voice in here? But we know how embedded the journalists were in everything in LA at the time. You know, this religious aspect that probably wasn't that weird to kind of interject. So you, and this is way before even like Sister Amy was basically running the city in the thirties. You know, you have all of these weird things happening in just yet another circus of a trial in early LA. So the high stakes meetings between Stephens. Harrison Gray Otis, Otis's son-in-law, business leaders, attorney Clarence Darrow, and the defensive team were tense to say the least. So they all yeah. kind of met, did this weird like mediation, including Stephens in it, the journalist. 
The defense's final plea terms detailed by Steffens outlined guilty pleas without confessions, a life sentence for J.B. McNamara, a brief sentence for J.J., abandonment of pursuing other suspects, and an agreement for a crucial labor capital conference. The urgency reached its zenith as the McNamara brothers reluctantly accepted the terms of the plea deal, with J.B. harboring cynical doubts about the judge. You see, J.B. had been the one to actually place the bombs and was most directly responsible for the lives lost and the devastation left behind. In the aftermath, a determined investigative effort coupled with the effective use of forensic evidence at the time and a little bit of luck, this fueled a year-long manhunt that really did wrap up a nice arrest, a trial, and then they did go on to convict a number of other bombing co-conspirators. So a major revelation was that most of them were revealed to be senior executives within the labor movements. So it was then unraveling what became known as the dynamite conspiracy, which was linked to over 100 bombings across the country. So clearly the urgency of the situation underscored the need for justice and resolution in the face of what could become possibly and most likely a nationwide threat for copycats mm -hmm. as this all emerged into public knowledge. So James and John both entered guilty pleas, John for a separate charge of involvement in the bombings of the Llewellyn Ironworks, which was carried out by Ordy McNanigal. And on the day of the sentencing, however, these high hopes were just put out by Stephens for an air of forgiveness. Those were all shattered when the judge handed down the jail sentences and abandoned all the rhetoric about compassion and understanding that would help improve labor relations. So as the brothers were being led from the courtroom following their sentencing, JB exclaimed to Stephens, you see, you were wrong and I was right. The whole damn world believes in dynamite. Hmm. Interesting quote. John Jay served 15 years in prison and James B served a life sentence. Following their trial, they were sent to San Quentin. James B was transferred to Folsom prison for a time and then sent back to San Quentin for medical reasons. So soon after being moved back to San Quentin, he died on March 8th, 1941. And John, his brother, died two months later. Hmm. Well, so currently we'll just talk about like what's there now. And again, with the, the LA Times pictures, and if you guys are able to rent the isotoric webinar on this, it's $5. You can rent it. The detective from the sheriff's department goes through again, some amazing photographs that he has. But as we had mentioned earlier, this building stood at first and Broadway, which is one corner of this huge city block where now the current, I say current in air quotes because it's empty, the LA Times mirror square complex is. So essentially that's first in Spring Street is where we kind of nail that down if we were to drop a pin there. And it consists of several structures that were built between 1935 and 1973. I mean, this is over 700,000 square feet of office space. And it includes that very distinct LA Times building, which is just such a grand example of art deco and modern architecture. And then there's the 1970s edition by modernist William Piera that was done sort of adjacent to it. It's in a ton of movies. They're always filming in front of it. <laughs> it's always. Like quintessential Los Angeles. Like, um, let me park my car. Can I please get by so I can get no, into the parking structure? You can't because there's trailers everywhere, always out there. So 
local master architect Gordon B. Kaufman designed the LA Times building and that part opened in 1935. And it's interesting in the webinar, they talk about what a fortress it looks like, but that was on purpose. They didn't want windows where you could easily throw rocks through or Molotov cocktails or, you know, these, they were like, we are doing really important work. Our employees need to be safe. So it is this monster of an art deco building, but just such a cool building. And then, you know, etched, you have those iconic letters that just say the times on the side. And this design actually won a gold medal at the 1937 Paris exposition. But really, and something you can see from street level, a highlight of the interior of the 1935 building is Globe Lobby, which is famous for its big aluminum globe, which is like five and a half feet in diameter. It's on this big bronze pedestal. And then also in the same area is the Golden Eagle that was at the top of the original building. They've they have preserved that and they brought it inside and it's on display there as well. But unfortunately, you know, it's just an empty shell at this point. So there's, it's a really cool area. If you come to downtown LA to just be able to walk around these buildings and see the different pieces that have kind of been added over the time. You said you heard that they were going to be maybe changing it into apartments or something. Oh yeah. It's so that original 1935 facade will be kept. Mm-hmm. And it sort of wraps around the corner. What had happened is all of that stuff that was behind it that looks like the Fortress of Solitude, yeah, you know, kind of jutting up into the sky. A couple of pieces of that will be left. Everything else on the block will be taken out and condos and apartments will be oh. integrated. So I'm hoping that it is some beautiful, beautiful design that integrates really well into the facade. But, you know, hope springs eternal. We'll see what happens, <laughs> you know. I hope so too. And I'm sure a lot of preservationists will have something to say about that. So absolutely, it'll probably happen in like 30 years when they can decide on what to be done with it. But well, I mean, it's, it's things have cleared up. There's a subway stop that just Mm -hmm. opened right across from it, which is actually really kind of cool because it ties together, I think four different subway lines for LA. So that's really cool. But man, that was five years of construction just on that little entrance. So yeah, but it looks great. only knows what this new building would be. I mean, it would be at least eight to 10 years. And I'm sure because it's supposed to be a high rise, like a real high rise. Interesting. Anyway, here we are talking about LA. We're LA not so confidential. We're downtown LA as part <laughs> yeah. of who we are. So right. So we just wanted to touch at the end of this on looking at radicalization a little bit. I know it's something we've yeah. talked about a lot in other episodes, especially on mass casualty incidents, but we thought we'd pop a little bit in here and understanding the concept of radicalization is important here, whether yes. it emerges from you know, marginalized religious movements or oppressed workers, like in this case. So the connection between mental health, particularly depression and involvement in terrorist activities is shown to be present in one specific classification or subgroup of terrorists, the individual actors with histories of mental illness. On the other side of these actors are those without obvious symptoms of mental illness who participate in big organized plots within a larger group of people rather than being that single perpetrator. And studies of these events show that mental illness, particularly the more severe conditions like psychoses, are just more prevalent in the lone wolves than in the group-based terrorists. So on the other hand, individuals involved in organized attacks generally lack 
obvious or noticeable signs of mental illness, but they can certainly be influenced by exposure to extremist ideologies through today's curse and blessing of social media or whatever the equivalent of the day was like in our story today. And the term radicalization really refers to a specific definition, and that is the process by which an individual or individuals comes to support extremist ideologies that can lead to acts of violence and terrorism. More contemporary literature defines radicalization as a social and psychological process through which ordinary individuals sympathize and commit terrorist activities. Researchers highlight that despite evolving definitions, radicalization can still exist without violence, encompassing vocal opposition to fundamental values of the society at large. So a group of researchers have developed a measure called the Sympathies for Violent Protest and Terrorism Indicator. It's the SVPT. Fascinating test. I have not been able mm -hmm. to get a list of the questions on it, but that would be really great to review. And it shows as an indicator of susceptibility to engagement with extremist groups. And in their research, they found an association between depressive symptoms and SVPT, suggesting that symptoms of depression might be that kicking off point to which cognitive biases make one more susceptible to the adoption, the integration, the inculcation of extremist ideologies and belief systems. Other key traits are the lack of hope and the presence of pessimism. Folks, this is so important. It's important for even if you're nowhere near becoming a terrorist, the idea that having a lack of hope and allowing pessimism to take too much room in your psyche yeah. can absolutely change your entire perspective on life. It can change your behaviors. It can change the way you walk through life. Yeah, I'm not saying we're not saying poor pork sparkles and glitter over everything because, you know, when shit's going down, shit's going down, right? We all have a responsibility to ourselves, to our families, to our community. Yeah, but if you but sit in that. It's also the exact cocktail we saw with QAnon coming out of COVID and the political, you know, times and all of these little ingredients were certainly there with folks. Yeah. And again, I'd like to tie it back to something at the beginning that we talked about when the robber barons were in power and we had wave after wave of immigrants from all parts of Europe and all parts of the world, what they would do is immediately pit those people against each other. The Irish against the Italians. That was like, a, that was a huge thing. Yeah. And then the, you know, who became local, which was generally the, the mix of the Irish, the Italians against the Puerto Ricans or the Cubans coming over. Mm. It's been done over and over and over again, because when you divide, that's how you conquer. Sure. Right. So researchers had concluded that nuanced relationships can exist between mental health, depression and involvement in terrorism. And they also all of the research ends with the same thing. We need more research. We need more research. We need more data. So, yeah, yeah. fascinating stuff. Definitely. And, and to make the, the sort of so what out of the research, how do we take this to then develop those effective prevention strategies that. We've also talked about a lot in our threat assessment stuff. So just in closing, there is a really lovely memorial at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. When the funerals happened, they did a very, what would have been a very, very long procession back then from downtown LA to the cemetery in Hollywood, 
where 19 of the victims are buried. So again, another really cool place to visit if you're in the LA area is to go to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, but they have a, a big memorial there dedicated to the victims of the bombing. Well, with that, we are all done with vintage for the month, for the year. For the year. This is our oh last gosh. vintage episode for the year. How cool. Yeah. We've covered a lot of a lot of vintage stories of Los Angeles again this year. I hope you guys are enjoying it. We certainly are able to go back and, and actually talk about LA cases as long as you know they're a hundred years old or so. So I think that's it. Anything closing, Scott, that we have? No, okay. thanks everyone. Thank you for our new Patreon members. It's very exciting for anyone interested. You can always hop over to Patreon and join at any level of membership. If you get a little too annoyed with the commercials we have, we understand that that's a lot of commercials, but we also have to keep our appearances up and we need support <laughs> all, all that money. This is not going to our procedures. It's not going to a new pairs of shoes. It's all going to wonderful sound and balancing production and being able to produce a quality product. So if you want to forward through commercials, you are more than welcome, but there's also an ad-free version over at our Patreon. So check yep. us out. All right, everyone. We'll see you at the next one at LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye guys. Bye folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>